1: Imagine you're in Syracuse, Sicily
2: in the 2nd century B.C.
1: When the city was part of the colony of Greater Greece, You're not a Greek citizen. Because
2: few people were, even men. But
1: nevertheless, you're happily strolling down a cobblestone street, admiring the frieze of Zeus in the doorway. Anticipating a delicious lunch of stuffed grape leaves. When from around the corner, running like a bat out of Hades, comes a man without a stitch of clothing. Dripping wet. And yelling. Eureka! Eureka! It's quite a sight. Enough to make you drop your dolmades.
2: Eureka! The story of the Greek mathematician Archimedes jumping naked from the bath after having a scientific insight is so appealing, it doesn't really matter that it's probably apocryphal. It captures the essence of scientific discovery, the raw excitement of being the first to have an insight, a novel and hitherto elusive understanding about how things work. Of snapping into place one
1: more piece, however tiny, in the puzzle of why the world is as it is. I'm Seth
2: Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Are We Alone?, The pursuit of science is a strange human activity. It's something you won't see other species do.
1: I have yet to observe a woodchuck stop his burrowing to ponder, is the universe expanding? Yet humans will drop everything to ask this, and those who discover the answers are often our heroes. Sometimes what these inquiring minds discover becomes the fulcrum on which everything else, including the advance of civilization, pivots.
2: That's certainly true with Archimedes, a mathematician who not only established the rules of buoyancy, which allows us to float everything from boats to balloons, but as an engineer was the first to describe the principles of the lever— you wouldn't have called Archimedes a scientist, though, because the concept of science wouldn't be established for another 2,000 years. But according to physicist Alan Hirschfeld, Archimedes' biographer, this prodigious and insightful Greek lives on in today's scientific enterprise.
0: His value today is perhaps more inspirational than it is practical. He's so part of the foundation of science. And if you look at what he did way, way back when in the third century B.C., you can understand where that uh, spirit of inspiration for modern scientists comes from. Well, when
1: you say the spirit of inspiration, I mean, was it that his style of doing science was different from what had come before, or was it simply the the sorts of things that he investigated?
0: It was really both of those. I mean, if you look at the sheer range of topics that he mm-hmm. surveyed and made discoveries in, physics, geometry, other branches of mathematics, invention, war machines, astronomy. It's quite a broad array of topics, and not just that, but I I think of him like a decathlete who sets the world record in, in every one of the events. He was just extraordinary, no matter what subject he actually studied
1: he was a, he was a renaissance man 2 2 millennia before the renaissance it sounds like
0: it it seems to me i mean he appears to be so so far ahead of his time it's it's almost hard to imagine any human being of that extraordinary ability well let's
1: discuss some of the things that uh, actually archimedes did now one of the famous lines supposedly attributed to him was something he said to one of the syracusan kings give me a place to stand and i'll move the earth he, w- he was talking about the lever, of course, and, you know, the lever is just, if you will, just a, a stick with a fulcrum, uh, but he didn't invent the lever. What, what was the point here? I mean, why is he famous for this?
0: You're exactly right. The lever was certainly known and used back in his time, but uh, like many, many other things that he worked on, he looked at the mathematics. He looked at the particular relationships in a mathematical sense that made things work. So, with the lever, he actually wrote a a treatise on the mathematics of the lever, so that everybody could understand how these things work. So, this is in the broad branch of physics, where he not only studied the lever, but he studied uh, buoyancy. And the balancing of various objects, all sorts of things like this, that nobody had ever done before.
1: Well, the, the buoyancy. I mean, now that's that's a discovery that has application today. I mean, it's how, you know, do you decide how to how to balance a submarine to get it at a certain depth and so forth? Wasn't that the discovery that he supposedly made in the bathtub?
0: So the story goes. I can't say whether that story is true or not, but. What supposedly happened was the king of Archimedes' kingdom gave him a problem to solve. The king was given a crown supposedly made purely out of gold, but he suspected that the goldsmith had actually used some counterfeit metal in there and instructed Archimedes to figure out whether the crown was gold or a mixture of some other metals. And the inspiration that struck Archimedes supposedly came in the bathtub when he stepped into it and saw the water rise and overflow. And he realized that you could do the same thing by basically immersing a crown and watching the water overflow. And that would give him one of the key bits of data he would need to determine whether the crown was gold or not.
1: Okay, this is known as Archimedes' principle, right? Uh, this yes. Buoyancy yes. Here.
0: What was the result? Uh, was the crown
1: pure gold or, uh, you know, had the, had, the, had the creator of the crown sort of cheated?
0: It appears that uh, the creator of the crown was a cheat, and I assume that he got the justice that he deserved.
1: <laughs> I don't even want to ask. But, right. but I do want to ask, I mean, uh, about Archimedes' reaction to this insight. I, apparently, he shouted Eureka and ran through the streets naked. Uh, I, I don't know too many scientists who would do that today.
0: I don't know of any who would do that today, but uh, you, you can understand, uh, again, the inspirational value of this, that you could get so excited about making a discovery or having an insight that you just throw all caution to the wind and, well, do whatever it is that, that you would want to do to, to shout for joy. Now, I should point out that in the ancient Greek, the word for naked has two possible meanings. So it could be in the modern sense of completely unclothed, or it could be in the old Greek sense of, well, basically running down the street in his underwear. (laughs) Well,
1: that sounds slightly more acceptable. Archimedes, obviously, this was a long time ago. The guy's almost apocryphal or or at least legendary. Uh, Do we know anything about what the man was like? I mean, what it would have been like to have Archimedes as your next-door neighbor?
0: There is in fact nothing that survives about him from his time. It all are reports uh, that are later, sometimes many centuries later. So all that we can really say for sure is that he was a brilliant, brilliant individual, probably somewhat eccentric uh, even by the standards of, of back then and certainly by the standards of today. And I think he also had something that we would at least call a little sense of humor because when he sent his mathematical results to his friends at uh, Alexandria, which was a center of study back then, he would always tweak them in his little cover letters and, and, and dare them to prove this or that and sort of keep them on the line, keep them wondering about, uh, about some of his ideas.
1: Sounds like he was somewhat puckish. Yes,
0: exactly. Exactly (laughs) so.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about his uh, military uh, engineering efforts, because uh, they've gotten a lot of play. He was trying to defend Syracuse against the Romans, I believe, and he had some nifty defenses that he worked out. Uh, Maybe you could tell us a little bit about those.
0: Sure. Well, uh, Syracuse is situated, of course, on the island of Sicily, which at the time was halfway between the great center of the Roman Empire and the city of Carthage. And uh, these two armies were constantly raging over the island with Syracuse in the middle. Uh, The king of Syracuse bet on the wrong side. He bet on Carthage. They were defeated. And then the Romans set their sights on conquering this fortified city of Syracuse where Archimedes lived. However, he prepared some incredible defenses. Uh, The Romans attacked from the sea and from the land. And as they came, when they came up to the walls, they were bombarded with all sorts of rocks hurled by catapults, by the old equivalent of a a crossbow shooting darts and uh, stones. And perhaps the most fearsome device was something that came to be known as the Archimedes claw, which was a, a modified cargo crane with a hook on the end of it. And when the Roman ships came up to the the harbor wall, the Syracusans would swing these cranes out, use the hooks to grapple the uh, Roman ships, lift them up, shake them, and just turn them over.
1: (laughs) Sort of pick them off one at a time.
0: Exactly so. And this is is basically uh, Archimedes' principle of the lever, but applied to war. But what what about that other
1: device that he had for trying to... Uh, disable the Roman Navy. He didn't have these big mirrors on the shore, and the idea was to focus sunlight on the Roman ships and set them afire?
0: Yeah, there have been reports over the centuries that he set up some giant mirror or system of mirrors and deflected the sunlight, focused it onto the Roman vessels, and set them aflame. Now, a couple of modern-day research groups have tried to repeat this in a more controlled environment, and they were not able to succeed. What I propose in the book is that uh, he may have used mirrors, but uh, probably to blind the Roman sailors and uh, certainly not to set the ships on fire.
1: Well, eventually, despite Archimedes' efforts, the Romans were successful in their battle against Syracuse, leading to Archimedes' death, I believe. Do, Do we know how he died?
0: It's quite a noble story. Archimedes, during all this hubbub of the Romans sacking the city, is uh, working on a mathematical problem, evidently. A Roman soldier bursts into his room and tells him to come along, and Archimedes refuses and says, supposedly, I am in the middle of a problem. Don't disturb me. Uh, the the Roman soldier took umbrage and then uh, killed him right there on the spot. Now, That story was tremendously inspirational to Renaissance scientists, like Galileo, for example. The whole idea of a scientist being so, so committed to the explication of nature that he even puts his life on the line for that and sacrifices his life as well.
1: In the pantheon of great scientific intellects, Archimedes obviously looms very large, Can you imagine, Alan, if he were alive today, what he would be doing? Would he, you know, just have tenure at some university and, you know, be working on a modern physics problem? How do you think he'd fit in today?
0: Well, I expect Archimedes would be doing today is what probably was his first love, which was mathematics, abstract mathematics. So I think he would probably be working in something quite abstract, maybe string theory or cosmology or or pure mathematics of some sort.
1: Well, Alan Hirschfeld, I want to thank you very much for talking to me about a guy who uh, was a little bit too early to win the Nobel Prize, but it sounds like he would have been in the running had he been alive today.
0: Without a doubt.
1: Alan Hirschfeld is professor of physics at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth and the author, most recently, of Eureka Man, The Life and Legacy of Archimedes. Thank you so much, Alan. You're welcome. Well, Molly, have you had any Eureka moments? Today or ever? Well, uh, let's start with today.
2: <laughs> I've had epiphanies. I don't think that's the same thing.
1: Well, I, maybe that's a, a, a mild Eureka. I, I don't know.
2: <laughs> eureka, I should get up earlier in the morning and yeah. go for a run. No, I don't think that's really a discovery that would help anybody other than myself. Have you? Well, I, I think
1: I have, although I have to say that when I look back on them, with you know the benefit of hindsight, uh, they don't seem that impressive. Sort of Eureka-ets, perhaps. <laughs> Coming up, Archimedes was a genius, but is a high IQ all it takes to make great discoveries? Your ears are sensing the pressure fluctuations created by the sound waves generated by Eureka on Are We Alone? You can find out more at radio.seti.org.
4: Step into the
3: world of power, loyalty.
1: Welcome back to Are We Alone? We may understand why a sudden insight into a fundamental principle of hydraulics would get Archimedes to run naked down the street, but what do we know about why he, or Any superachiever makes a discovery in the first place.
2: Okay, Archimedes had brains. He's thought of as a genius. But is a stratospheric IQ the only requirement for scientific breakthrough? Isaac Newton's law of universal gravitation, that gravity extends throughout the universe, revolutionized physics. But what if things had gone a little differently in 17th century Cambridge?
3: Well, that's curious. Look at how the apple fell from the tree. Clearly it's accelerating. I I wonder if I can describe that. Hold on. Say there's a force acting upon it, and the strength of the force, I'll call G or something like that, well that can only mean that...
1: Hark, Isaac, I draw thine attention to this cool Xbox. I bought it with my miserable wages from Boston Tables at Ye Olde English Pub. Ought we not play? Perhaps anon, Charles, I just had an important insight into the nature if of... If I plug this in here, and turneth it on, might we not rouse ourselves with a game of Grand Theft Horse, public disembowelment, or, well, there's Mario Kart, that's my sister's, or my personal favourite, Off
3: With Her Head. Really, I shan't. thoust can be King Henry. Well, perhaps one game. ha! <laughs> no, you are not worthy of the title of Queen! Off with your head! ha! <laughs> chop Chop!
1: He has advanced to level 3, Tyrant Isaac! Thou has beat his my high score! Chop Chop! And by the way, what was that important insight into the nature of something that you'd had earlier?
3: I don't remember. Now stop distracting me! I'm almost to level 4! You've borne me no son to the tower! Chop Chop! ha! <laughs>
1: Well, too bad you didn't stick with that apple insight, Professor Newton. You were kind of on to something. The ability to stay with a problem until you solve it to have sustained focus is a key skill amongst those who make scientific breakthroughs, says University of Pennsylvania psychologist Angela Duckworth. She calls it grit. Newton had grit, and as a result, we have the universal law of gravitation, not to mention calculus. Archimedes spent days so intently fixed on a problem he would forget to eat. Imagine giving up pizza to think about pulley systems. But sometimes that's what it takes.
3: When you look at very high achievers across a number of different domains, you know, you find that they are extremely hard workers, I mean, exceptionally determined and persistent not only in the face of adversity, which is obvious that you would have to be, but also that they're they're persistent in their interests. You know, they're not dilettantes. They kind of, you know, really focus in on a particular goal, a set, of, a set of interests, a particular domain in life that they're going to excel at, and they stick with it as opposed to switching around. So I guess I would argue that, you know, very, very high achievers are talented, but there are many talented people who don't have these other qualities, which also are important.
2: One of the traits that super achievers have in common in something that you've studied is this ability to zero in or, or focus on a particular goal. Is that right?
3: Yeah, that is right. And I think that, you know, if you read biographies of, you know, Isaac Newton and others, I mean, one of the things that is remarkable about them is that, you know, though they are incredibly, I mean, that they're brilliant mentally, right? That whereas other brilliant people might get easily bored by pursuing, say, a given research question for, you know, years and years these really exceptional high achieving geniuses tend to be able to i think as isaac newton put it you know basically hold a question in front of your mind for a very very long time you know not minutes not hours but years such so that you really work on it and um You know, somebody that I work with quite closely, a collaborator named Jim Heckman, who won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2000, he's a professor at University of Chicago, has said to me that, you know, when he works on a problem, it's like walking around something physically in space. And, you know, you walk around it and you walk around it, and sometimes you walk around it for more than a decade. And, you know, you may not be thinking about it all the time during those years, but you don't you don't leave it forever. And it it often is, you know, after years that you kind of come to some crucial insight, which advances you to the next level of understanding.
2: Now, you mentioned Isaac Newton, and he did have this incredible mental energy that allowed him to focus on one thing over prolonged periods, as you said, you know, maybe even a year. Is this what you call grit?
3: It's half of grit. So this quality that I study, that I call grit is, is in part, this consistency of interests over, you know, years and years, consistency of goals and interests, as opposed to, you know, this kind of uh, cursory, flirtatious interest in many things. And I think we, we know a lot of people like this, you know, maybe the listeners would be able to think of somebody who's really brilliant, but they get bored so easily that, you know, one day they want to be a doctor, and then two months later, they want to be a politician, et cetera. Um, so that's half of it. And the other half is just, you know, good old-fashioned tenacity and persistence in the face of adversity, and in the face of even I would say, like, plateaus in progress. Right. So people have an intuition that if you get knocked down, you should get back up again. And that's important. But the other part of tenacity is just sticking with something, even when, you know, there's no obvious progress for a certain period of time.
2: The other side of that would be you need to know when to quit, that you may have tenacity. You work on something for a while while your friends are looking at you thinking, why doesn't he give up on writing that novel or whatever it is, because it's really not going to go anywhere. And some people get stuck in writs because they, excuse me, (laughs) writs. That's the combination (laughs) between rut and grit. Right. (laughs) and some people get stuck in these in these ruts because they don't know when to give up.
3: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So I have never studied whether grit is also a predictor of great failure. And it may well be, right? It could be that having this quality of, you know, tenacious passion um, and, you know, an ability to really focus in on a goal despite, you know, maybe limited feedback that you're actually getting anywhere, you know, that could, you could argue, like coupled with poor judgment, for example, or low talent, be a tragic, you know, a tragic combination of characteristics and that, you know, maybe these are the people who are the least successful. So I don't know. I mean, it's a really, it's a really good question. And, you know, to the extent that there would be a trait that would mitigate against, you know, not cutting your losses early enough, it would seem to me to be something like judgment You know, something like having a kind of a practical sense of balance.
2: So you study grit, which is what you call it. Can you scientifically measure grit? What's the metric for this?
3: Well, we've measured it in two ways. The first way is the way that most personality psychologists measure most things, which is just simple, you know, paper and pencil questionnaires Uh, these kinds of rating scales, you know, I am a hard worker, you know, one through five, five is very much like me, one is not like me at all. I mean, this is how sort of most personality research is carried out. Its primary flaw, and there are many, is that, you know, you can fake these questionnaires quite easily. So if I wanted to get a sort of perfect grit score on a questionnaire, it would be very easy for me to do so. But there is a second way that we are developing which is to actually look at people's biographies, in particular their job history, or their, for students in college or high school, their extracurricular commitments, and to look for a pattern of consistency and follow through. You know, we, we look for depth, um, and we've had some success working with some organizations and schools in actually quantifying grit without asking the applicant anything at all, and showing that it does predict, you know, performance, you know, retention in, you know, as opposed to dropping out in whatever activity it is, whatever organization it is that we're studying.
2: Well, let's look at some of the characteristics or skills that predict performance from these uh, self-discipline types or these people who have grit. One of them seems to be the ability to filter out distractions.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the ability to focus and filter out distraction is important, although I think it's also true, and this this requires a little, you know, subtlety here, you know, to, to get this nuanced point, but, you know, you do have people who really are working at something quite seriously day in, day out over years who – you know, do struggle with, you know, distraction. They even may be at the the low end of the, you know, attention spectrum that they, you would say that they're ADHD, but they can still be gritty if they struggle with distraction daily and yet, you know, keep working at this so they don't ever stop practicing what it is that they're practicing, even if, you know, on a day-by-day basis, the practice sessions aren't as focused as they, you know, would like them to be. I would argue that they're still demonstrating grit and that, you know, sure, having grit and talent and the ability to really focus is terrific, but I think they're not synonymous. And you have some people who have terrific attentional skills, but they're the ones who change careers still too many times to actually make traction in any one career. So they're not in the same thing, although it is true that if you take measures of, you know, ability to focus and pay attention, that kind of self-discipline, it is true that those people do tend to be grittier, but they're not the same quality. They're not exactly the same thing.
2: Do you have any idea from an evolutionary perspective why sustained focus is so difficult? Because... It's curious why we aren't hardwired for this kind of rapt attention since the payoff could be so great down the line. It could be a discovery, a scientific discovery, but it could also be getting into grad school or buying a car or whatever it might be. And yet it actually takes some effort.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a great puzzle, I think. Whenever we find a trait like intelligence or beauty that, you know, seems to be all upside, right? I mean, it's, for example, a myth and a misconception that really, really smart people are somehow, you know, worse off in life. I mean, every study that's been done shows that, you know, more IQ points is better, everything else being Equal, so why aren't we all really, really smart, right? And why aren't we all really beautiful? And why aren't we all really self-controlled? You know, what's the downside? So it's a it's a bigger puzzle than just the question of like why aren't we all self-disciplined? It's it's a question of like why aren't all positive traits universal? Um, and I don't think there is a, a good answer to that yet. I mean, it could be that these traits do have some dark underbelly. Like, okay, if you get too focused on one thing, maybe you are you know too likely to um, pursue things at the expense of other things that you could have done, you know, opportunity costs, you know, are are not weighed carefully, or could be that maybe the cognitive resources that are required to be really focused and attentive are, for some reason, you know, crowding out other things that you could do with those parts of your brain. I mean, I don't, I really don't know. But I think that it's an excellent question to ask. It's just that one that we don't have a good answer for, so far as I know, anyway.
2: Thank you very much for talking with us.
3: Thank you. I enjoyed
2: it.
1: Angela Duckworth is a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania, and you can measure your own grit by clicking on the link to her work at radio.seti.org. From the latest in
0: artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, And it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: William Herschel was born in Germany in 1738. He was musically inclined. He played the organ, several other instruments in fact, wrote two dozen symphonies, and took a job at some chaplain bath. But that was his day job.
2: At night, he liked to look at the sky, and he liked to build telescopes. In fact, he built some of the largest telescopes of the era. Back then, you didn't order the kit, you did it yourself. Herschel spent up to 16 hours a day grinding and polishing mirrors that he used for his own scopes. Up until Herschel's time, we knew of only five planets.
1: Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn.
2: And suddenly Herschel finds another one, Uranus. We realize we didn't know the universe at all. And Herschel was studying the sky on his own time and his own dime. He wasn't paid.
1: But that didn't last long. Impressed with his discoveries, King George III created a new job for Herschel, the king's astronomer. This meant there was a whole new career choice in 18th century England. You could become a scientist and go out and learn novel things.
2: This was the dawn of the age of wonder, as writer Richard Holmes titles his book about how the romantic generation discovered the beauty and the terror of science, when the enterprise of science was coalescing and much of nature had yet to be discovered, when Charles Darwin, Joseph Banks, and Captain Cook were setting off on their voyages of discovery. And William Herschel didn't stop with discovering a new planet.
4: He also discovered that we were in a galaxy called the Milky Way, and there were other galaxies unimaginably far away, like Andromeda, for example. And this gave an entirely new dimension to the universe, and it frightened people.
1: And people even said, where is God? But Herschel surely did not recognize that these fuzzy patches he was seeing on the sky... External galaxies, that they were really beyond the Milky Way, though, didn't he? I mean, that that wasn't established, I I thought, till the 1920s.
4: You're thinking of Edwin Hubble, and you're absolutely right there. But no, he did. There are a series of papers where he does exactly say that. And he uses the fave an island universe, by which he means an island galaxy. And also, he refers to these galaxies as laboratories of the stars and how that they're developing, maturing, and withering extraordinary papers also predicting the fact that our own Milky Way will collapse and wither away.
1: Well, clearly, you spend a lot of time talking about William Herschel, born in Germany, took a job as an organist. That's right. In fact, I I believe you note that his charting of the heavens, and he did do charting of the heavens, I mean, this was a major enterprise, but that he approached it the way he would approach a piece of music.
4: Yes, he, he seemed to have this extraordinary ability to recognize patterns, And he could very quickly recognize anything new in the heavens. And I compare that to a gifted musician who can sight-read a score. There was that kind of gift uh, with him. And indeed, their charts almost looked like musical scores. Um, So that's kind of another element into it. But could we talk about his sister for a moment?
1: Oh, absolutely.
4: Because uh, this brings another theme to the book. It's a lot to do with teamwork. And in this case, Herschel has a younger sister, Caroline who is in Hanover in Germany and is actually much bullied by her parents, particularly the mother. And Herschel, the moment she's 21, he zooms over uh, from England and virtually kidnaps Caroline, brings her back. And she too becomes fascinated by astronomy, helps him build the telescopes, and herself becomes very distinguished. She discovers eight new comets, and she's the first woman astronomer who's paid a state salary for her scientific work.
1: Well, uh, you mentioned the salary there, and uh, wouldn't we call someone like Herschel, I mean, a guy builds his own telescopes, I suppose that wasn't so unusual at the last part of the 18th century, but wouldn't we call somebody like that an amateur today? I mean, at least before he discovered Uranus and got a government job? I
4: mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, once he did, I mean, he was appointed uh, not royal astronomer, but, but the king's own astronomer. And he had this uh, observatory just outside Windsor where the king lived. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting shift. And what do we mean by amateur? Because in those days, the word amateur had much more original. Somebody who loves doing some particular thing from the Latin, you know, ammo, I love and so on. There seems to be no dividing line. Those early telescopes were made in the, his basement kitchen. It still exists, being England, in Bath, the very house. And the kitchen with its stone floor is still there. And it still got the cracks in when he was trying to cast the metal mirrors, and they spilled red hot metal on these stone floors, so that was yeah, it was very it was amateurist the brother and sister, but by the end, I mean he was uh, a member of the Royal Society, He was visited by people from all over Europe, amazing correspondents, which went out to America, to Russia, to France, particularly to France, great rival with the french astronomers so it 's a very interesting shift from a kind of amateur thing to something you extremely professional, and I'm very interested by that move, over.
1: Well, indeed. I mean, we take it for granted today that there is a profession known as science. That you know, as a kid, you can aspire to grow up to be mm. a geologist or a biologist or an astronomer or something like that. But that really wasn't the case in those days, right? I mean, was anybody hired as a as a, a, a scientist back then? I mean,
4: that's right. Well, let's start. I think, Juno. You know, I mean, it is amazing this, but the word scientist did not exist. And it was invented at a conference at Cambridge in 1833. And this was the younger generation, the generation after Herschel, with which the book ends. And there's a new organization, which is called the British Association for the Advancement of Science. There's now an American version as well. And they got together. And one of the first things they debate is what do we call ourselves? And amazingly, at this conference, not only were all the young scientists, but the aging poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge was also there. And he said, you can't call yourself natural philosophers anymore. You've got to come up with a new word. And somebody, in fact, a man called William Hure, suggested scientist. Somebody else said, oh, that sounds like atheist. <laughs> 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 so that word got into trouble right from the beginning. And we may say that word... Still runs into trouble as scientist atheist as we well know.
1: <laughs> Richard, you begin your book with Captain James Cook. Best, yeah, yeah, one of my personal heroes, I have to say. Best remembered for his voyages of discovery in the South Pacific and Alaska, for that matter. Uh, but Cook was being funded, as I recall, by the British Admiralty. And the Admiralty—I I can't imagine they were interested in science, were they? I mean, didn't they just want better charts? Yeah,
4: I mean, it is very interesting. Yes, they were interested in science, and they were also interested in charts. Actually, the main reason, well, there were two main reasons for that first voyage. The first was to establish was, was there a great southern continent? That is say, even further south in Australia, they'd heard news of the east coast of Australia, and indeed of New Zealand. But the second was a purely scientific reason, which was to get observations of a, a transit of Venus, which is basically the planet Venus crossing over the face of the sun, and by measuring the moment it enters and the moment it exits, you can get, by triangulation, very good distances on other stars and the sun, and that's what they were interested in. So that it was an admiralty expedition, but the Royal Society also paid to have professional astronomers aboard. And finally, Joseph Banks, who's another hero of this book, young botanist, eaten in Cambridge, bought his own place aboard the Endeavour expedition, that's the name of the ship, And of course, his discovery of the civilization on Tahiti was completely transforming. And I write a great deal about that. And when he gets back to England, he suddenly becomes completely famous for this and for what he writes, talks about it. He has a wonderful journal, which has never been properly published, but I'm able to use. And he becomes the president of the Royal Society. And for the rest of his life, 40 years he's president, he becomes the guy who finds the young scientists, both the men and the women, and backs them and funds them and sends them out on their voyages of discovery or their searches and inventions.
1: You know, I think that names like James Cook, Captain Cook, uh, Charles Darwin, for that matter, the musician-turned-astronomer William Herschel, those are familiar to a lot of people. But you also talk about somebody like Sir Humphrey Davy, Someone who's probably less familiar. Tell us what Davy did.
4: Yeah, such a characteristic view of the age. He was a kid who was born in Cornwall. That's in the far bottom left hand of England. See what I mean? Very remote district. Then born in Penzance, only had one year of schooling at Truro Grammar School, but had these natural gifts. I mean, extraordinary. He wrote very well. He wrote poetry, but he's also a scientist. He came to Bristol where he was taken up by a research institute there, the Bristol Pneumatic Institute. And they were searching into gases, which had just been discovered, artificial gases like nitrous oxide and so on. And they had the theory, quite reasonable theory, that by breathing these gases, you might be able to cure some of the terrible diseases of the age, notably tuberculosis. And Davy arrives there, I mean, so young, 20 years old. And immediately, it's clear that he's a brilliant experimental scientist. He breathes a lot of these gases himself. He's completely fearless. He almost kills himself breathing what we now know as carbon monoxide. And then he attracts a whole circle of also young scientific people, but writers. And amazingly, in his laboratory, he gets volunteers to breathe the gases. One of the volunteers is Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the poet of Kublai Khan, And there are Coleridge's accounts, breathing these gases, and then he has to give a scientific account of what he experienced and so on. And a great friendship forms between Coleridge and Davy. Davy then goes on up to London, uh, meteoric career, during which he invents the miner's safety lamp, uh, which I'm able to write uh, in great detail how he did that, which saved the lives of thousands of miners, not only in England, but but right across Europe. So he's an extraordinary guy with a brilliantly successful professional career, and a very unhappy private life, which also interests me a lot what effect obsessional scientific work has on your emotions, your private life, your ability to sustain relationships.
1: Richard, by the time your narrative ends in the mid-19th century, I guess, I think it could be fairly stated that the major scientific disciplines we know today, astronomy, chemistry, physics, biology, geology, and maybe mathematics, they were all established in their modern guise, so to speak. So Was this inevitable, or was there something in the beliefs of this romantic generation that caused this turning point between not understanding much and then thinking we could understand everything?
4: Well, yes, there was something, and I think you've got to remember this period. This is the great period of the American Revolution and the French Revolution. These were two generations of people who passionately believed the world could be improved, both through politics, through writing, and through science. And in a way, the energy of that is still with us, I think. And it's striking among these individuals, both the men and the women, how their capacity for hope and their optimism is quite extraordinary and the way they would put their lives and careers on the line for this. And I think then this feeds in to the later generation who then realize that science is an enormous force for good, but it needs working out and needs paying for. And then you gradually get into much more Victorian professional science and the same over in America. So this is a kind of, I don't know what you call it, a pump prying. It's the fire being lit, really. And to write about these people is so fascinating because both their official careers, but also their private lives are absolute turmoil and fascinating and unstoppable.
2: Richard Holmes is the author of The Age of Wonder, How the Romantic Generation Discovered the Beauty and the Terror of Science. We're listening to William Herschel's oboe concerto in C major.
1: You wouldn't have had the scientific revolution if no one could write F equals M-A, or all living species are connected through descent from a common ancestor— Reading and writing made the widespread dissemination of ideas practical, after all, and they were inventions. Our hunter-gatherer ancestors didn't read scientific journals nor write letters. Those skills didn't emerge until five or 10,000 years ago. Now, cognitive neuroscientist Stanislas DeHaan from the Collège de France argues in Reading in the Brain that not only did literacy change the course of civilization, it fundamentally changed our brains. But surprisingly, Our chimp ancestors showed predisposition for this skill. So why did it take us so long to invent reading?
5: The invention of reading is extremely recent. It's only about 5,000 years ago. And so there has been no time for the brain to uh, evolve by genetic mechanisms, specific mechanisms for uh, reading. So we must be adapting our brain circuits to this novel problem.
1: You say that reading and writing, they are only five, maybe 10,000 years ago. I was in the British Museum not long ago. There was all this cuneiform lining the walls there. I'm sure it was very interesting, if I could have read it. Uh, But but that's actually very recent, given that Homo sapiens has been here for almost 200,000 years. Why didn't we invent reading earlier?
5: Uh, Reading is pretty complicated. And even already 5,000 years ago, it was quite far from uh, reading as we know it today the invention of the alphabet took even longer. I think this is because reading requires a significant amount of uh, what I call recycling of the human brain. So reading is a wonderful invention by which we found a way to reuse our existing visual system, and we learned a way to connect it to the language system. So we may well have evolved a language system for speaking and uh, listening to language, for spoken language. But the new invention is that we learn to access this whole language system, which has a number of binaries, through vision.
1: So I guess what you're saying then is that we were pre-wired to be able to do this, maybe in the sense that my laptop is you know, not designed to play chess, but it has the capability of playing chess, if, if that's what I want to do with it. And so this really was an invention. This was not a discovery that we, we found inside our brains.
5: Uh, I don't know if I like the notion of prewiring because really this organization is not for reading at all. But we discovered that if we used a specific set of shapes to identify the sounds of uh, language or individual words, then we could uh, actually convey entire sentences through writing. That is the new invention. In doing so, of course, we have to significantly change the brain. So many of my experiments use brain imaging to show that our brains as adult readers have adapted to this difficult problem of uh, learning to read. So when we learn to read, we have to change our brain organization in order to tune it to the problem of recognizing specific letters and connecting
1: them to specific sounds. Well, clearly that isn't a very difficult task. I mean, kids can learn how to do this. I mean, five-year-olds can learn how to do it. It, it, it must not be a very difficult skill.
5: Uh, it is a much more difficult problem than you think when you think of it at the brain level. So if you consider how a word, even a single word, is processed by the brain, here is what's happening. The word is completely exploded initially by your retina because there are fragments of words are being recognized and uh, not the whole thing. Individual cells in your retina only recognize the presence of light at specific points. So uh, reading is like a giant jigsaw puzzle. The brain has to put it back together and put back together the, the entirety of the word. So in order to do so, what your brain does is organize a hierarchy of cells, a hierarchy of neurons that begin to recognize small parts, then putting together these parts, recognize individual letters, then putting together these letters, you can recognize pairs of letters, which we call bigrams. And finally, by putting together this information, you can recognize the whole word. It's a pretty complicated process to read. What's interesting is that we don't realize it at all. We're completely blind to it. It's totally non-conscious. And it takes about one-fifth of a second for our brain to go through this entire series of
1: stages. Now, yeah, that, that is amazing. I mean, I, I can do very little with my brain in a fifth of a second, it seems. This was an invention. And what was the benefit to us? I mean, that that sounds fairly trivial, but what was really the benefit to our species?
5: The main benefit, I think, is memory. And not just immediate memory, but what other people have called speaking with the dead, listening to the dead with my eyes, as Francisco de Quevedo was saying. This is really a miracle. You know, you can read what Plato wrote some 2,500 years ago. You can uh, still read thousands of works and have access to the thoughts of thousands of thinkers only because of this invention of reading. In addition, there are several other improvements that reading does to our brain. Thanks to reading, we have higher visual resolution. We, We have better visual information because we train ourselves basically to recognize small shapes. And we also have a better language system. We have better language memory, even for spoken material. If you compare the memory of literate versus illiterate subjects, the capacity to repeat words is much better when you've learned to read, essentially because you're adding a new code to your brain. You're adding a visual code which allows you to record incoming words, even if they are spoken initially, and which therefore extends your memory.
1: I'm speaking with Stanislas Dehaan, cognitive neuroscientist at the Collège de France, You mentioned here the recognition of shapes even by chimpanzees. There have been experiments showing that chimps can recognize letter shapes as well. Isn't that so?
5: Well, you can train a chimp or a monkey to recognize letter shapes. But what I mention in my book is that even in untrained monkeys, you already find neurons in a visual system that recognize shapes that look a little bit like our letters. Uh, Take, for instance, a T-shape. Well, you might think that the T-shape is a complete cultural invention, but in fact it's also present in natural images. For instance, when an object is hidden behind another, their contours will make a little T-shape. And it turns out that uh, the primate brain, even the monkey brain, has adapted to the presence of these sorts of shape in the natural environment and has dedicated part of the visual system to the recognition of these little intersections of contours. So not just T's, but L's and Y's and O's. The, all of these are very useful shapes to recognize our environment.
1: So you're sort of saying that the letters of our alphabet, uh, and not just the Roman alphabet, but presumably every alphabet, to some extent trace back to our primate brains. I just always assumed that the letters were sort of the simplest kind of shapes you could make with only a few strokes of a pen or a chisel or whatever, you know, that they didn't have any resonance with our brains.
5: Now, the letters are simple, but they are simple just enough so that your visual brain can recognize them easily. And you can show that the selection of our letters and, in fact, the selection of all shapes of all alphabets in the world and all writing systems, in fact, even in Chinese, they all match very uh, nicely with what our visual system is capable of doing.
1: But you also point out that, for example, shapes like P and a Q, they're just mirror images of one another. And I would think that if this was the kind of pattern we're programmed to recognize because it has some survival value. It, it, it tells us something about the outside world that we need to know, that there's a predator behind that bush or who knows what, that, you know, you don't care whether it's left-right or right-left, but yet we have distinctive letters, P and Q. That sounds like bad engineering. It's probably
5: is the one feature which is bad engineering in our specific alphabet. You know, in ancient Greek or in uh, Egyptian uh, hieroglyphs, You could write from left to right and from right to left just as easily. Uh, And you could even write one line from left to right and the next line from right to left. So it's only recently that we have decided that there should be only one direction of writing. It's not very adapted to our brain because our brain, as you said, likes to treat symmetrical shapes, at least left-right symmetrical shapes, as uh, identical. What the child has to do when he's learning to read Is in a certain sense, to unlearn this symmetry generalization. And he has to learn that a P and a Q are actually different letters. Virtually all children will initially be able to read in mirror image and to write their name in mirror image. And it's only later that they lose this ability as they learn to read. Many people think this has to do with dyslexia. It has nothing to do with dyslexia. It's a a spontaneous competence which is present in all children's brains. We lose it as we learn to read.
1: Well, finally, Stanislas, a lot of kids, people 30 and under, have different reading habits than, say, my generation. They skim, they use text abbreviations, they click on hyperlinks at the end of every sentence, opt for video. Uh, How do you think that the digital environment is going to reshape our uh, reading skills of the future?
5: I think it's going to remove our writing skills. We're no longer writing. But I think that reading is here to stay, because reading is such a powerful invention, Uh, It is really a miracle that we are able to take so much information so quickly through our visual system and take it to the language system. We can get it even faster or just as fast as with spoken language. And I, I don't think we've seen the end of reading. I think we will discover that there are better ways of conveying visual information. At the moment, if you look at computers, all we are doing is mimicking the printed page. It's the most naive thing you could do, right? But uh, think of all the color information and motion information that you could have to convey language information even quicker. So I look forward to the possibility that we will have new writing systems that will be even better adapted
1: to our brain. Stanislav Stahan, I want to thank you very much for speaking to me with this uh, old communication medium, namely speech. Uh, today, it's been extremely interesting. Well, thank you very much.
2: Stanislaus Hahn is a cognitive neuroscientist at the Collège de France in Paris. He's also the author of Reading in the Brain, the Science and Evolution of a Human Invention.
1: You know, Molly, uh, you know serif fonts, the ones that have those little strokes at the ends of the letters?
2: That look like little feet at the bottom of the R or right. something like that. Right. Well, there have
1: been studies in the past that seem to suggest that it's faster for us to read a serif font than a sound serif font. Sans serif without the little feet. Why, why would that be? Well, the the idea is that maybe your retina is constructed in such a way that having those little serifs helps it to recognize the letters to process the information faster. It's kind of odd given the fact that serif fonts are only in sort of an historical inheritance from the days of the Romans when they would chisel letters into stone.
2: Oh, so the chisels were those little marks they made at the beginning of the letter, and then they'd go on to create the letter.
1: Exactly. Just the width of the chisel meant they had to have serifs, and, and here we are still doing it. Well, what I can make out from my notes here in front of me, that's it for our show. And just so we don't reinvent the wheel, the credits, as usual.
2: We thank Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Sandra Chung for their help with this program.
1: Also, the SETI Institute, we're looking for life elsewhere in the universe, means understanding the role of technological innovation. Also, the NASA Astrobiology Institute. You can find out more about our program at radio.seti.org.
2: Eureka! Eureka!